This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. This is a very, very disturbing statement, but the disciples want to know. They want to know from Christ more information about this coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but they must not ask him openly, publicly, about this. They had to be very quiet about this. This has to be asked privately, because no one can hear Christ answer, and that's why we read in verse three, in verse three, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? It was private. Now, we know that it wasn't all the disciples who came to Christ and asked him about more details about the destruction. As a matter of fact, we know there were just four disciples that came to him on the QT, silently in Mark 13, three, Mark 13, three. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? It's interesting that the disciples, when they heard him say that it was gonna be destroyed, they didn't just dismiss it about the destruction of the temple and the Jerusalem. They didn't say, that's impossible. Look at these walls, they're impenetrable. But the disciples believed Christ. They believed him, and they just wanted to know more. They wanted to know more privately without any of the Jews seeing them ask him for more details. It was a private thing. They wanted to know just between him and them and Christ. Tell us. Reminds me of two Jewish persons this last week. One is an Orthodox Jewish man in New York called um, Israel Restoration Ministries and said to person who answered phone that he secretly believes in Jesus. And he said that he wants more information about Jesus Christ, but he doesn't want any printed material that others could see him reading. He only wanted digital material that he can secretly read on his phone. So we directed him to over 300 hours of the YouTube videos and this class, Genesis, in over 10,000 pages of note that we've organized online. Because like the disciples who asked the Lord privately, this Jewish Orthodox man is privately inquiring about Jesus Christ. And then yesterday, I, my Lyft driver was a Somali, 
And uh, surprising to me is that he told me, the Somali Muslim man, that he loved the Jewish people. I thought, what? Because he said his wife's oncologist was an Israeli doctor, and they have become really good friends. And he calls them, and, you know, his wife passed away, but he calls them. And the Somali man has even traveled with his Israeli doctor friend to Israel three times. So I said, wow, you know. And as we talked about his Israeli doctor friend, he said, well, he told me he believes in Jesus. And I said, what? I said, wait a minute. Are you telling me that this Jewish Israeli doctor believes in Jesus? And then the Somali man said, oh, oh, I wasn't supposed to tell you that. I wasn't supposed to tell anyone. He told me to keep it a secret because of what would happen to him in Israel if it became known that he believes in Jesus. I said, yeah, he may be no longer a Jew. Anyway, so like the disciples who came to Christ privately to ask him about the coming destruction, there are those, there were those, John 12, 42, John 12, 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him that they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So the disciples now are coming to Christ and they've got two specific questions. They wanna know when this great destruction is going to occur. Now, they already know that this great destruction is going to happen in their lifetime because Christ said in the previous chapter, in chapter 23, verse 34, chapter 23, verse 34, wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. And verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation, and then he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children as a hen, gather her children's under her, the chickens under her wings, and you would not, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. They knew that the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem was going to happen in their generation, in their lifetime. They just wanted to know exactly when. They wanted to have, no. And the second question is, what's the sign? What's the sign that we're looking for that this is imminent, that this is going to happen? Christ was telling them that there was going to be an immediate fulfillment, but in what he said, it was in what he said that indicated like, there's an immediate fulfillment, but there's also another fulfillment later than that, a future fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment was in 70 AD when Titus came and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. That was what happened about 30 years later. But what Christ has done here in his prophetic prediction is so common in the scripture to use an immediate event to serve as a prophecy for a eventual, future event. This is common in scripture, where prophecy seems to have been fulfilled by something that happened then, but not exactly, because the wording of the prophecy leads you to believe that it's not totally fulfilled. For example, the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 7.14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. The Hebrew word translated for virgin is the word alma, which does not mean 100% of the time virgin. 
in the five times it is used in scripture, four out of five times it's referring to a virgin, but there is a time, a fifth time, where that is that one time Alma does not mean a virgin. And there was an immediate fulfillment to that prophecy in the next chapter, in Isaiah 8, verse three, Isaiah 8, verse three, where Isaiah says, I went unto the prophetess, she conceived and bare a son, and said the Lord unto me, call his name in the very, Maharshallah Bash, something like that. Now, that was an immediate fulfillment, but there were just parts of that prophecy which left you hanging and left you thinking, it's not totally fulfilled because that son wasn't called Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, uh, behold, an Alma shall conceive and bear a son and she calls his name Emmanuel. Name of Isaiah's son was not Emmanuel, so there was both an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment of that prophecy. The future fulfillment of that was Matthew 1.21, Matthew 1.21, she shall bring forth the son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, behold a virgin uh, shall be with the child and shall bring forth the son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is being interpreted God with us. That's the parthogenesis word in from Greek means virgin. And by the way, when the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew into Greek hundreds of years before Christ by 70 rabbis carrying the current Jewish thought among the Jewish people, they used the word parthogenesis also. But anyway, the point is this double fulfillment with the immediate and future is what's happening here with Christ's prediction as what will happen. Now the disciples, they don't understand that there's two fulfillments here, that what Christ is saying, because they think it's just all one, which is when they replied in verse three, verse three, tell us when shall these things be, what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world. This is not the end of the world in, in 70 AD. They misunderstood in thinking that when Jerusalem and, and the temple would be destroyed, that that's also gonna be the same time as the coming of Christ and of the end of the world, which means it's real easy to see what prophecy is referring to after it happens. And you can look back and say, that's what that prophecy is referring to, which is why I stay away from, I won't, I do not wanna teach anything on prophecy, because I'd rather wait till it happens and then tell you what it meant. A pastor came to me recently and said, are you a pre-trib rapture or a mid-trip rapture or a post-trib rapture? And I told him, I wanna be right. So I'll tell you exactly if the rapture is, is before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation, and I'll be 100% right because I'll tell you after the rapture happens, after it comes. Right now, I'm too busy worrying about the present than to worry about the exact details of the future. And I really haven't given it much thought about when the rapture happens, and frankly, it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. So right now, I'm just taking a position on that. I'm not taking a position on that. And in this chapter, there are things that Christ will say that frankly, I leave as a mystery. I don't know, I'm not sure. Because there's a danger, and there has been a danger with scripture, of people over-refining what's gonna happen when, and it damages the understanding of a chapter like this. Over-refinement is when a person confines his position to a particular interpretation and doesn't allow room for, I don't know, he doesn't allow room for vamos a ver, he doesn't allow room, let's wait and see. He doesn't allow room. So the first question that the disciples ask is when, in verse three, tell us when shall these things be? 
They want to know the time when these destructions are going to happen. They want to be told, like Daniel was told about this is the time, and Daniel 9.24, Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city, to finish the transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, and the street shall be built again, the wall. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince shall come to destroy the city, etc. So the disciples, they want something like this. Tell us how many weeks, how many years, exactly from what point we're counting. And as the disciples are laser-focused, waiting, listening for Christ to answer their question, when, that what they heard him say in verse four is Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. Now, when they got that for an answer, we can see them looking at each other and puzzled with, did he not hear our question? Why is he not giving us an answer to our question? We asked him when the great destruction is gonna happen, and he answers us with a, a disconnect warning to not be deceived. They thought he didn't answer their question, but the truth is, he did answer their question because it says in verse four, and Jesus answered. So he wasn't off on some other tangent or talking away. The answer to their question of Christ is going to return in the end of the world is deception. That's the answer to their question. There's going to be strong deception that's gonna threaten to overwhelm believers. Now what's deception? What's deception? Well, the first deception, the classic illustration of deception is the first deception of the Bible, which we are told in 1 Timothy 2.14, 1 Timothy 2.14 says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Eve was deceived by Satan in the Garden of Eden. And this picture is in Genesis 3.2, Genesis 3.2, the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, that your eyes should be open, and you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband. God had clearly stated that if Eve ate from the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that she would die. And that made the fruit from the, the tree something to be not looked at nor thought about. It was dangerous. The deception was that Eve concluded that God was wrong and she was right. God said that the tree was bad for food because it was poison in the sense that it would bring death. But Eve did not agree with God. Eve felt that the tree was good for food. Genesis 3, 6, Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw 
that the tree was good for food. Eve saw the tree as it's gonna taste good, it's gonna make me feel good after I eat it, feel, feel, feel. That's the first John 2, 16, the lust of the flesh. God said, you should look at the tree, the fruit of the tree, as ugly and as bad because it's gonna bring death. But Eve did not agree with God. Eve felt the tree was a beautiful sight. Genesis 3.6, Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw that the tree was pleasant to the eyes, Eve saw the tree as beautiful and enjoyable to look at. That's what 1 John 2.16 calls the lust of the eyes. God said that the tree would destroy her into a state of death, but Eve didn't agree with God. Eve felt that the tree would do the opposite, build her up to a state of being wise and having more knowledge. Genesis 3.6, Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So Eve saw the tree as able to make Eve great with wisdom and knowledge. That's what 1 John 2.16, 1 John 2.16 calls the pride of life. And that's the picture of deception. And in those three areas, it was God said, but Eve felt. God said, but Eve felt. God said, but Eve felt. God said the tree was fatally bad for food, but Eve felt the tree was good for food. God said the tree was ugly as death to the eyes, but Eve felt the tree was pleasant to the eyes. God said the tree would make a person dead, but Eve felt the tree would make a person wise. It was all God said, but Eve felt. For Eve, it was all, I don't care what God said, I feel. I don't care what God said, I believe. Eve put her feelings of her personal beliefs against what God said, and Eve said, my feelings and my beliefs win over what God said. And that's what deception is. Deception is following personal feelings and personal beliefs over what God said in his word. And the basis for deception, for Eve's deception, for our deception, is the heart the heart, the human heart, God says, within the soul is the traitor within the soul. It is the Jeremiah 17, nine, Jeremiah 17, nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. So when God says the heart is deceitful over anything else and desperately wicked, God is saying, there's no such thing as a good heart. There's no such thing as a good heart. How can a heart that is deceptive above all things and desperately wicked be evil? That's why Christ said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more should your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? We all have a terrible handicap, and it's our heart. We all have a terrible disability and it's our treacherous, wicked, deceptive heart. And the path to deception is lined with advice. Just follow your heart, follow your heart. Our heart is the Judas Iscariot inside of us betraying us into a path of destruction. And we may not even be aware of it. We may not even be aware of it. There's such a battle going on inside of us. It's the conflict between our hearts and the word of God and we determine who's gonna win. 
We determine who will win the battle by which one we listen to more, our hearts or the Bible. That's why it's so important to keep ourselves saturated in the book, keep ourselves immersed in the Bible. Just like the man, the story of the man who had two dogs on leashes and they were ready to tear each other apart. The two dogs were fighting, were ready to tear each other apart and they were growling at each other. And another man came up to the, that man and said, which dog wins when they fight? And the man says, the one I say sick him to. When we stop reading the Bible and start listening to our hearts, we're saying to our deceptive heart, sick him against the Bible. But when we keep ourselves in the Bible, we say to the Bible, sick him against our deceptive hearts. An illustration of the value of the Bible, keep our deceptive hearts under control, is a picture of, you may have heard this, of the three mountain climbers who are on the ridge climbing up the mountain, and they're all tied to each other, they're tethered to each other. The mountain climber leading the group, his name is Fact. The second mountain climber after him, his name is Faith. And the one behind his name is Feeling. And all of a sudden, the last climber, Feeling, falls, but the two Climbers, faith, in fact, dig in, and they're able to pull feeling back up, get them back up on the ridge again. And then all of a sudden, both feeling and faith, they both fall, but fact digs in more deeper, and strong enough, he pulls them both back up on the ridge. Fact is the Bible, and by staying immersed in the Bible, we're able to recover after our feelings and even our faith have failed, Psalm 119, 176, Psalm 119, I have gone astray like a lost sheep, Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. 2 Timothy 2.13, 2 Timothy 2.13. For if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. As the hymn says, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. In times like these, you need the Bible. In times like these, Oh, be not idle. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. The rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. The rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds, grips the solid rock. And the reason that the deception becomes so strong is because of what's gonna happen in the last days. In the last days, 2 Timothy 3.1, 2 Timothy 3.1, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. What's that mean? That means that as we get closer and closer to the coming of Christ, 2 Timothy 3, 4, 2 Timothy 3, 4, it will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Instead of 2 Corinthians 5, 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, they which should live not henceforth unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. That means the time goes closer and closer, the Bible will be read less, and following the heart will be more and more. Now, Christ said that there's going to be many who would come in verse five, verse five. Many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are gonna come and claim to be Jesus of Nazareth, but it means that people are gonna come and assume the place of Christ. The Greek in, um, Verse five, that's translated in my name, literally means on my name, on my name, which means on the ground of my name. In other words, people are gonna come as though they were sent by Christ with a special message from Christ. Deceivers, like Joseph Smith, who started Mormonism and came claiming 
that he was sent by Christ and received another testament, the Book of Mormon, and millions followed him. But it could be that those who claim to be Christ, for example, Bar Kokhba, and even uh, uh, claim to be the Messiah, and even Menachem Shearson started the Chabad movement, many believe that he's the Messiah as well. So this is where Christ is coming from. He's saying to them, you wanna know the time? It's gonna be all about deception. Watch the deception and you will know that the time is at hand and be careful, stay in the Bible, stay in the word to keep from being deceived, let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, our great leader, our great savior, in Jesus' name, amen. Tom Cantor's messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. For other free resources, email us at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. Join our live services on YouTube by searching Friendship with God with Tom Cantor every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.